Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So clubs, organizations, teams, groups of any kind, any style, around anything, they always have a way of figuring out how to identify themselves. They have some kind of initiation process. There's usually insider language. There's often a certain way that you have to act or behave or dress. Like if you're on a team, you have a uniform, you have certain kinds of warm-ups that you do. It's just, it's human nature that we identify ourselves as people, and we want to be sure we know who is in the group and who's not. You can very clearly tell those who really belong and those who don't. Well, God, not only knowing our human nature, but redeeming it and creating it, he has given us a gift as the body of Christ, two identifying marks as God's people, two unifying practices that Christians down through the ages have practiced in similar ways. What an incredible mystery and how beautiful it is that we have something in common with people who've lived thousands of years ago or people who are living right now but who live halfway around the world and who speak a different language and live in a very different context. And yet in Christ we have these identifying practices of baptism as the entry point into the community of faith and we have the Lord's Supper or communion as an ongoing sustaining mark for those who belong to the house and to the table of God. And so, so far in this series, uh, we've looked at different ways that we practice corporate worship. We've talked about fellowship and belonging. Uh, We've talked about prayer, about singing, and about the word. And so we're going to round out our series this morning with baptism. And then next week, Pastor Dan is going to talk about communion as these two practices that are fundamental in shaping our corporate worship with other believers. So as we talk about communion and the Lord's Supper, we understand these in our tradition as sacraments. We have to understand what we mean by that. So I've put up this statement here. This is from the Westminster Confession. This is a doctrinal statement uh, that's hundreds of years old, and we uh, follow it in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, It's not imperfect. It's not anywhere close to Scripture, but it is our best understanding of a sort of systematic way of laying out the truths in the Bible and understanding our doctrine. So the Westminster says this about sacraments. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. They're a visible difference between those who belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So I like to think of the sacraments as kind of multi-sensory dramatizations of the truth of Scripture. They're a way that we participate in, in understanding the truth of the gospel and the truths from God's word in a very practical way. They're, they're a gift to us because we are we're, we're embodied beings, right? We, we live in bodies and we have to understand these great mysteries 
that are spiritual by nature. And so God gives us these gifts of these practices that engage our senses. If you think about it, between baptism and uh, communion, we engage all five of our senses. Sight, touch, taste, smell. I forgot one. Hearing. Oh yeah, thank you. Together with the preaching of God's word by the power of the Spirit, these sacraments, they reveal to us again and again the heart of the gospel and they make them accessible for us as finite creatures who are so limited, who can't even remember a list of five things that are so fundamental to being human. Right? The the sacraments help us to grip these incredible mysteries and to keep practicing them over and over again. They serve as signs. What does a sign do? It simply points to something. It points us in the right direction. And the sacraments point us to realities far beyond themselves. They remind us of the truths of the gospel, that Christ died, that Christ rose, that Christ is coming again. The sacraments ground our worship in the centrality of the gospel. But they're also seals. We might think of this image of in the ancient world, When a king or someone powerful would send a message, they would seal that message. They might use uh, melted wax and they would dip their signet ring in that and they would place that seal on the document so that when it got to where it was going, people would know if it still had the seal on it. It was the authentic message. It had not been changed. It had not been tampered with. And so we have the Holy Spirit who is the seal on our lives and on our salvation, but we also have the sacraments that serve as a kind of seal bringing these truths to bear in our lives, knowing that they're not just generally true, but they are true for us as individuals. Now, these sacraments don't work apart from faith. They're not magic. Okay, there's, It's not magic water in baptism. It's not magic bread. It's not that if you participate in these things and you get baptized, you're automatically saved, or you come to the table, you're automatically saved. No, we don't believe that. We're only saved by faith. But the sacraments, when we participate in them with genuine faith and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the context of the body of Christ, we believe something powerful happens. We believe that God's truth is conveyed to us in a special way, unlike other ordinary meals or ordinary interactions or conversations. We believe that something profound happens when in faith we come together and we participate in these practices. I love David Mathis's definition here in Habits of Grace. He says they are Christ-instituted channels of God's power, delivered by God's Spirit, dependent on Christian faith in the participants, and given for the corporate context of the gathered church. This is the gift of the sacraments to us. So this week and next, we're going to come to a deeper understanding of them. We're going to maybe learn some new ways to engage in them more effectively. And we'll begin with baptism. So baptism is, is a sacrament. It was instituted by Jesus. And it signifies a believer's union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And one's union with Christ's body, the church. In short, baptism is a kind of initiation. We're all familiar with this idea. One of the most culturally accessible ones that I'm not personally familiar with, but many people join a fraternity or a sorority. There is an initiation process involved in that. You may remember that 
Maybe you don't want to remember that. Maybe I don't want to ask you about it. I don't know. But it's, we understand this idea that an initiation happens in which we, we join a group and there's some kind of process of getting there. Often with groups, an initiation involves paying some kind of fee, doing something to prove our worthiness to be a part of that group. Not so with initiation of baptism. We don't have to prove ourselves. We simply by faith participate in a death that was already paid on our behalf, in a life that was already reserved and earned for us. We, But we are initiated. It's a kind of initiation into the family of God because it's something that we do at the beginning of our life of faith. It's something that recognizes our entrance into the community of God's people. It marks new life in the way of Jesus and a new family and a new holy purpose. It's a seal. It's a sign of our union with Christ and our union with Christ's body. And I think this is the first of the great truths that Paul unpacks for us in Romans chapter 6. It's this idea of union with Christ. You could make a case that this is the central doctrine. This is the central truth in all of scripture regarding salvation. Why are we saved? How are we saved? What are we saved for? It is through and for union with Christ. We are saved to be in union with him. Union with Christ means we have a new identity, new purpose, a new power, and a new hope. Now, it's one of those phrases that's like the Trinity. Never actually shows up in the Bible. If you search for union with Christ, you won't find that phrase in the Bible, but you also won't find the word Trinity. But the concept is all over the place. We've just put language on what the Bible is talking about. And so the phrase union with Christ doesn't show up in Scripture, but what does is a set of prepositional phrases that capture the idea. The most common being in Christ, or in Him, or in the Lord. Each of those is talking about the experience of being in union with Christ. This is what is most central to our identity. We are a people who are in union with Christ. And Paul unpacks two movements of this experience of being in Christ. The first is dying to sin. And the second is being made alive in Christ. We share in his death. We share in his resurrection. Because of our union with Christ, whatever is true of him is now true of us legally. Just as he died, we die with him through faith. Just as he rises, we too have the hope of eternal life and resurrection. And we're told over and over in this passage that we are to know, to know, to know who we are in Christ, to know what this means. It's critical to our discipleship and our spiritual maturity. And this identity gives us a sense of gratitude, of belonging, of security. All of those things that we hope for whenever we join some kind of group or some kind of organization. We want to identify. We want to belong. We want that group to shape our behavior and our attitudes. We want it to be a place where we belong and we are loved and accepted. And no other group do we get the satisfaction that we're hoping for than to be a part of the group of people who are those who are in union with Christ. Nowhere else. There's nothing like this on planet earth than to be a part of a group of people whose lives are so shaped by this experience. And these truths are symbolized in our baptism, our death to sin, being made alive in Christ, being a part, being in union with Christ's body. And yet these truths are realized 
over a lifetime. So the first movement is that we die to sin. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In light of Paul's emphasis on grace, he begins this section with an important question. In other words, whenever I sin, if there's the opportunity for God's grace, then, well, maybe I should sin more so then I can experience more of God's grace. It's sort of a good conclusion, except Paul says, no, not at all. You don't get it. You don't understand grace. If you think that grace is a license to sin, you haven't understood grace because the whole point of grace is so that you could die to sin, so that you could become a new person. You die to sin in order to live this new and holy life. So so how could we think that grace would encourage us to sin all the more? No, it encourages us that we have died to sin. We're no longer the person that we used to be. But what does Paul mean when he says, verse 2, we are those who have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean we no longer have a desire to sin. We do. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted by sin. You will. It doesn't mean that you're incapable of sinning. You still are. So then what in the world does it mean if it doesn't mean any of that? It means you are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. Sin is no longer your master. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer dead in sin. You are now alive in Christ. And though you will be tempted to still live like the old way, you have this new way that has been opened up to you. And you have to step into that. And all of us will live inconsistently. But without Christ, you are dead in sin. And in Christ, you are dead to sin. It's not your master. In verse 12, we're emphatically warned, do not let sin reign in your flesh so that you give in to its desires. Actively fight against it. Don't give sin authority in your life. Don't entertain thoughts that will lead to sinful actions. Avoid tempting environments. Run when you see them coming. Invite others into the battle with you to hold you accountable and to help you fight the battle. Through union with Christ, we have real power and real resources to overcome sin. Sin is not your master. You've heard me say before, sin is not your friend. Sin is a fake friend. Sin is that friend that doesn't want to climb, uh, doesn't want to jump off the cliff by themselves, so they invite you along, but they're not actually your friend. They just don't want to be there alone. Whenever we observe a baptism, it is a powerful reminder to us that in Christ we have died. We're no longer the person that we used to be. It's a wake-up call for us. Every time we observe, we remember who we are in Christ and that in union with Christ, we have died. We no longer live the life that we once lived. We're no longer slaves. We're now joyful servants of Christ. And there's a new power at work in us. And so the second movement is that we become alive in Christ. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. So we're saved from our death to sin. We're saved into a life that serves Christ. Paul's thought goes from knowing to actively considering to now offering yourselves to God. It's not just an intellectual knowing, but we actually have to consider and offer ourselves to God in service. The purpose of being set free from our sin is so that we can serve an infinitely greater purpose in our lives. We can serve the living God. That's what we're saved into. And Paul ends this section with a promise. He says, sin will not rule over us because we are no longer under the law. We are now under 
grace. Under grace. It's a new lens for our life, a new filter, a new house, a new field. We're under grace. The tyranny of sin is broken. The power and curse of the law has been broken. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And grace compels us to know and become who we are in Christ, to live into this new way of being, a life lived to holy service to God. So all of this is the sort of theological foundation for the practice of baptism. But I want to take just a few minutes to walk us through a couple of practical considerations and some applications surrounding baptism. So let's start with the big one, which is the question, when should a person be baptized? Now, if you haven't been around the Kirk very long, uh, you probably have some questions because we're a little bit unusual uh, in our practice here. You will see uh, people baptized as infants or young children. You will see young children also dedicated. You will see older kids baptized, adults baptized by immersion. And actually, even sometimes we have had adults uh, that were baptized through sprinkling or through pouring. So you see just about the whole gamut of baptism. Maybe you think these guys are just confused or they're wishy-washy. They can't decide. What we have chosen is a position to say that your particular position on baptism is not an essential. You see, we have seven essentials as a church and as an EPC, and baptism is not one of them. Now, it's not to say baptism is not important. It's important, but it's not an essential, your particular view on it. So I want to walk you through a, a little bit of the rationale behind maybe the practice that some of you are less familiar with. I assume many people kind of understand believer's baptism, and of course, someone comes to faith, we'll baptize them, right? We think that's the normal practice. So the one that we have to to lay out a foundation for is baptizing young children or infants. Historically, we've done this in the Reformed faith, and the rationale for this is that we believe that baptism uh, should be offered to the believing parents because of the biblical pattern of God's covenant promises and blessings being offered in the context of community. The primary building block for that being the family unit. So in the New Testament, there are a number of places where an entire house came to faith and they baptized the whole house. Now, we don't know what the ages were. We don't know if they had infants or not. But but let me tell you what the pattern here is. The pattern is that in that cultural context, as the leader went, so went the group. They didn't think individually. They thought as groups. Now, we can't understand that because we're in a very individualistic context. But in that context, in the Hebrew culture, I think even bleeding over into the Greco-Roman culture, they would have thought less individualistically than we did. So for the leader of that group to be saved then was a choice that the whole family was going to follow that way. Okay? And so this kind of bleeds over into understanding that as the people of God— in a way, we don't, we don't choose salvation for our children, but we choose to raise them in the church, which gives them a strategic advantage. And ordinarily, in that context, that means that they will come at some point to profess a faith of their own. That's not automatic. That doesn't always happen, but that's the typical pattern. And so when we baptize young children, we're saying a couple of things. Number one, we're saying that their spiritual life has begun already, that God is working in their life. We're emphasizing the fact that long before we choose God, he has chosen us. We're emphasizing the fact that, that we can't do anything, just like a little child can't take care of themselves. We can't do anything 
to earn our salvation or to make it happen. We're completely dependent upon our parents, and just spiritually, we are completely dependent on the Lord. And so, because of this, we baptize children. Now, at the same time, we know many of you come from different traditions. Some of you say, I don't buy the theology behind that. It doesn't make sense to me. And so we steal your children away from you in the middle of the night and we baptize them. No, no. We, we say, look, that's, that's a family decision. So what I say to, to parents is do something to, at the beginning of your, spiritual, your child's spiritual life, do something that is, that is significant to place yourself under the community of the believers, to say, my child's life, has, their spiritual life has already begun. And so we will do dedications as well. Now, some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters might snub their nose at us a little bit for doing that. What are you guys doing? Uh, dedicating babies. Well, we believe that it's important that you stand in front of your church, whether you use water or not, whether you agree with our non-essential theological system, we think it's important for you to stand in front of the church and say, I'm going to raise my child to know and love and serve Jesus because that's the most important thing. And I need your help to do that. I need you to pray for me. I need you to serve alongside me. I need you to help me because we all know it takes a village and more. And so this is why we've chosen this position to not make it an essential. I found a great summary of the common ground that evangelicals have on this by Stephen Wellam. It was on the Gospel Coalition website. And he says this, We ought to agree that every Christian should be baptized in obedience to God, that baptism is the sign of the gospel realities of union with Christ and all the benefits of new covenant, that baptism is tied to our incorporation into the church, and that the act of baptism does not regenerate. Instead, baptism is effective only by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That can be shared as an evangelical position, even among those who support infant baptism, who support believers only. There's a lot more in common than we realize. No matter when we get baptized or how much water is involved, baptism is about celebrating what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And our participation through faith in the saving power of the gospel. It's a celebration of the beauty of the church, of being in union with Christ and in union with Christ's body. It is uniquely personal, personal, but is also unquestionably corporate at the same time. We're baptized into something. We're baptized into the body of Christ. We cannot separate our union with Christ from our union with Christ's body. So here's an important question. Does the person have to be baptized to be saved? The clear answer on that is no. However, the normal pattern in the New Testament is that when a person believes, they are baptized. So there's really not a good reason not to be. I think it's an important step of obedience. It doesn't save you. You don't have to do it to be saved. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus commissioned the disciples to go and make disciples. And the first thing he told them to do was baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all my commands. So why water? It's fairly straightforward. Water is a universal symbol of life, symbol of new life. It's essential to life. Water is also a symbol of purification, of washing, and of cleansing. That was certainly the case in the Old Testament, and that carries over. Water is just, it's a universal symbol. It's recognizable. So when we observe a baptism, how can we actively 
participate. When we see a baptism in service, and that's my only regret of this whole of this whole morning was that, you know, in God's grace, he didn't see to it that we had a baptism to do today. But I pray we have more of them into the future. Amen? Amen? But what can we do to actively participate in that? Because every time there's a baptism, there's an opportunity for us to interact with that. Now, the first thing is that when you observe a baptism, you fall into one of two categories. Either you've already been baptized or you haven't. Maybe because you just haven't been baptized or you're not a believer. If you haven't yet been, then for you, it's to consider the truth being proclaimed in that baptism. To consider the message of it, which is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we die to our sin. We repent and we turn away from that. And we are made alive in Christ through his perfect life, through his death, through his resurrection. A whole new way of being human is opened up to us. And so if you've not been baptized and you're you're not yet a believer, you have to consider that. And whether that's true and whether that's something that you want to surrender your life to, you have to consider that. If you have been baptized and you see a baptism, I think there's three things that we can actively do. The first one is that we can praise God. Praise God for a life transformed, a life in union with Christ, death to sin, being made alive in Jesus Christ. The second thing we can do is pray for that person. Pray for them that that God would mature them and grow them, would bear fruit through their life, that God would bring people into their life to walk alongside them this long road of obedience, that God would encourage them and help them to be faithful, that he would use their life. We can pray for them. And the third thing that we should always do is preach to ourselves. We should rehearse again the truth of baptism, what is being represented therein. And it should be, I think, for the church a kind of mini-revival every time we see a baptism because the truths proclaimed so clearly in the sacraments never get old. They're so profound. Again, as I said last week, like God's word, they're like a diamond, a multifaceted diamond. You keep looking at them and you see new facets of brilliance and of light. And so it is with a baptism. When the gospel is clearly proclaimed to us, through that practice, we hear again the words of truth. Your life is not your own. You have died to sin. You have been raised to life. You are a new person. Death no longer has mastery over you. You are no longer a slave. You have been set free. It is for freedom that you have been set free to serve the living God. These are the truths that are proclaimed to us over and over again as we experience together, not just an individual being baptized, but every time we are reminded that we are washed in the waters of faith and we are renewed and we are strengthened. And my prayer is that we're going to see more of them. We're going to see more baptisms in this church by the grace of God for his glory. He's going to use us to go out and share the good news. We're going to see lives transformed and we're going to praise God for it. We join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the powerful proclamation of the gospel in Romans 6. And God, we thank you for the gift of baptism that you have given us, a way that we can see and that we can hear, we can sense the water 
And we know what it is to be renewed, to be washed, to experience new life in you. God, I pray for every person here today that if they have been baptized, God, you would just remind them of the joy of that experience. God, we pray for those who have yet to, God, that you would reveal yourself to them. You would show them that the way of Jesus is more true and more beautiful and more powerful than the life they've been trying to live on their own. And God, we pray for people who have yet to step through the doors of this church, but God, that you would send us out and we would see lives transformed by the gospel and new believers brought into the family, brought home into your house. So God, we ask for these things expectantly and we trust in you and we love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.